All right, so my guest today, Elizabeth, um, is a professor of sociology, and she's the chair of the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Social Work at Nassau Community College. She's also a senior strategist for the Woodhull Freedom Foundation, and that's the nation's only human rights organization working to protect sexual freedom as a fundamental human right. Um, and kind of right around, along those lines, Elizabeth uh, stated the value of openness as her most important value, which, which is a really interesting thing to discuss. And I think given her background, her experience um, as an anthropologist, as a sociologist, you know, that kind of view, she has a lot of knowledge about the history of humanity um, and, and human nature that I think made this conversation really interesting. And, you know, I think when Elizabeth says openness, she certainly means openness to consider other perspectives, openness to explore things we don't understand, but also an openness very directly to, to discuss taboo topics or things that might be deemed inappropriate or, or, or not to be talked about in society. And, and the reason for that is Elizabeth believes there's a pretty direct correlation between openness and our overall well-being or happiness. And she gave a, an example during the episode. It actually is the topic of, of a book she wrote um, where her openness to be willing to explore her mother's sexuality actually led to a pretty significant uh, improvement of her mom's quality of life. So this this topic, you know, getting very directly taboo of, of a parent and a child talking about sexuality and, you know, sexual preferences and kinks, even as, as she explained it. Um, very directly did improve well-being. So we talked about that example and tried to kind of understand that. We also spent some time delving into how openness plays out with other social issues we face today. So we talked about things like teaching kids about sexuality, religious freedom, um, the impact of capitalism on our society, those types of things. And I think one of the most interesting insights across all these topics, right? And I say this all these all the time. These topics are all complex. They're nuanced. It's, there's not often clearly a right or wrong answer. I think the insight was that there's such an advantage to openness. There's such an efficiency to it, kind of what we were talking about before about the impact on well-being, because when you're open and curious, it, it gives you a chance to, a better chance to get to the truth, assuming that's the goal, right? Logically, if, you, if you're open, you have a better chance to find that versus if you're closed-minded, it becomes very limited. It becomes very finite based on what you already believe or what your agenda is, and it, and it limits you from getting to the truth. Um, now, I'll be clear, like, it, it doesn't mean that if you're closed-minded, you're necessarily necessarily wrong or, or your, your viewpoint isn't valid. It just means that you wouldn't actually know it because you've never actually been open to challenging it. So I think this conversation with Elizabeth was, was really, really interesting, touched on some fundamental aspects of human nature and really hit head on this idea of, of being open. But it's, it's being open in all ways, right? Particularly when the view that you're hearing or the thing that you're hearing is not something that you like. Still being open to try and understand it, to explore it, is such an important thing. And I think we have to challenge ourselves ultimately to care more about the truth than our personal or gender or ego to be able to do that. Um, but a big thanks to Elizabeth for being on in a, in a really interesting conversation. All right, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on the show. Really, really do appreciate it. I will get right to the question of what's the value that's most important to you? I've been thinking a lot about that since I saw your podcast the first time. And I think the value that's most important to me right now is openness. Okay. Talk to me. Um, I guess, firstly, let's define that. When you say openness, what, what, what does that look like for you? So for me, that looks like openness to um, new experiences, mm. openness to difficult conversations or taboo subjects, 
openness to celebrating or at least understanding difference um, and openness to connection with other people. Interesting. So it's it's a bit of a, um, I, I feel like sometimes on the show, we, we get values that fall into a couple different categories. Some that are more like functional kind of a means to an end versus mm -hmm. others that are more of an end in and of themselves. Somebody might say family is a value and it's just, you know, being with family. When you think of openness, it seems like maybe it falls more in that former, where if we are all more open, it will allow us to get to some place as a society, as a world, as a species. Is that fair, firstly, in, in that assessment? And if so, what is it that that allows us to, to get to? Yeah, I, I think that is fair. I think openness is perhaps a thing unto itself, but it really only has value in relation to something else. Mm. In other words, like if you're open, what are you open to? Mm. So mm -hmm. openness for its own sake is even then in connection, right, to other things. Yeah. So if we think about it kind of instrumentally, like what does it get us to? I think, you know, right now, I'm thinking a lot about the state of the United States. I'm thinking about how divided we are and how difficult it is for different groups of people to talk to each other. Mm. And I think that's causing a kind of deterioration in our social world in all kinds of ways. I mean, political discourse is one, but in terms of increased violence, in terms of increased depression and mental illness among young people, there's so many ways that this gets manifest. So I think openness can be a means to creating a healthier and happier world at the most kind of macro biggest sense, but also to creating happier individual lives for each mm. of us. Mm. Mm. So let's dig into the mechanics of that. Cause I, I often, <clears throat> I often say, I, I think of things mathematically, maybe not literally, but figuratively, like our minds are always running calculations. So if you take that in lieu of what you're saying, openness, maybe saying it this way, the reason people aren't open sometimes is they run that calculation and they think there's too much risk to being open or, or there's, there's too much risk to, to um, not kind of protecting themselves and just sticking to what they know. And in some ways, although that might not be big illogical, there is a logic to that where people feel like it's not the way for me to go. How do you think about that? Because it, it can be unnatural to be open. We do want to be comfortable. We want to be safe. We want to stick to what we know. How do we overcome that mathematical aspect of it to get people to see, like, actually, there's another way to look at this equation, if you will, to where openness actually gets you to a better outcome, a better answer than you think it does? I think there are a couple answers to that question. One is that we have to have boundaries, just like when you first asked, is openness a thing unto itself or is it a means to an end? There's no openness if there isn't a self to be open right? If we are all just one thing, then we don't have to even talk about openness. Mm, mm. If we're talking about openness, it's because we have an individual sense of who we are, what is our place, where do we belong, who do we connect to? So we control our boundaries. So if you think about it using a kind of, um, instead of a mathematical analogy, using a, like a biological analogy, we have a membrane around us. We can perhaps open that to allow more in or, or mm. close it to, to protect what's inside, right? So we control that. And I think it's really important that people have agency to protect themselves. Mm. But, but we have to take risks, right? Otherwise we don't grow. So I guess I would connect openness with curiosity. And curiosity is another really important value to me. Mm. I think if you think about openness and connect it to curiosity, then it doesn't have to be about 
taking something into yourself that might be harmful to you. It could be simply about understanding something else. So I can be open to understanding you without having to take on your ideas. I can be open to interacting with you, but still control how much interaction we have, mm. right? Or I can be completely closed and not curious about what you think or why you think it, not interested in talking to you. And in that case, I'm protecting myself perhaps, but I'm also harming myself by not allowing myself new information. There's always the risk if you, if you are open to some new piece of information that it might change the way you think. It might be shocking. It might offend you, right? And it, it might hurt also. So there is risk, certainly. And I would imagine each of us at different points of our lives has more or less tolerance for risk. Uh, yeah, it's right. interesting too, because it's, it's, it's obvious in some ways when, when people think about risk in whatever form that is, there's that sense of like big risk, big reward. So we know that kind of intellectually that risk isn't inherently bad and it opens up the door to better things. But as you're explaining it, there's almost like the two dimensions of openness. There's the dimension, which is thinking about your own safety and well-being, almost protecting against that negative. And, and to your point, that's fair. Like there's truth in that. There is risk when you, when you open up more and you let more in. So being thoughtful about it, setting those boundaries so you can do it in a way where you don't feel like you're being reckless or putting yourself in danger is, is valid. And we should think of it in that way. But I think what I've found too, which, which I think you're articulating as I've kind of gone through my journey and tried to be more open is that there is a true positive to it. Like if, 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 if nothing else, um, it does make life better, very simply, which sounds like just those words people say, but, but it's true. Like, as you said, there's more experiences, there's more opportunities, there's more to learn. There's just more excitement in life in the more open you are. So I think thinking of it through those two dimensions and saying, yeah, yeah, there is risk and you should protect against that, but don't let that make you forget how much benefit there is and how much there is when you do open up, how much there is to be gained. There's another way I would think about that based on what you're saying now too. And this is important to me as a sociologist. None of us exists alone, right? No matter how much we wanna be closed off or protect ourselves, we cannot function as humans completely alone. And in a society like this one, we live in a very complex world with lots of community intersections. You know, we, you, you live on Long Island, I live in Queens, we're separated geographically, we belong to a state. You know, we, there, there's a lot that connects people to each other. But even if you just think about your local community, there are resources in your community that are created by and maintained by people working together. So we have to work together in order to survive. In really tiny societies, people work together to survive. In really big societies, people work together to survive. And we will all do better collectively if we cooperate. The challenge in a big complex society like this one is that there are so many divisions between us mm. that if we become really invested in maintaining those divisions, then it's hard for us to work across boundaries and collaborate. So you can think about openness also beyond the individual level and think about it at the community level. Mm you know, how open are people in my community to people in a different community? Mm, mm. If you make that really big right now, you know, think about immigration stories, think about um, refugees, think about who are we willing to help, right? So, so this goes way beyond the individual interaction sort of calculus. Yeah, it does. I want to interact with somebody. It does. 
Although I would say, I think that it's, it's a microcosm maybe of, of what you're saying at a societal level, because even as a society, let's take it as a country, as you said, immigration as an example, I think as a collective of those individuals, as a society, as a country, there's people that come together and say, there's too much risk quite literally in us opening the borders or, or being more open to different cultures and different ways of thinking or, or whatever the things may be in very much the same vein we were talking about before, because again, there's just too much risk. What if, what if I get hurt because of that? What if they take resources away from me? And it's that same mentality, which is, which is what makes it so fascinating to me, this idea. I, I had somebody on the show recently and the value they picked was grace. Actually, I think I just released it today. And we had a similar conversation, I think, in that it seems to be against human nature a little bit. Like on a very base primal level, we seem to be coded around safety and security and, and like growing our species and protecting ourselves. And concepts like grace or openness, tolerance, these things that make us a little bit vulnerable, perhaps, if we're just being you know, objective about it, it's not as natural for us as humans. It's almost as if we have to continue to evolve to get to a place where at scale, we can embrace that as individuals or as a community or a society. And that's what makes this such an interesting, challenging, at times scary topic, because we know it's better. It's just hard to get people to really buy into it. I, I would challenge that a little bit. I, yeah. I suspect as, you know, thinking as a sociologist that it's actually more in our human nature to collaborate, cooperate and help each other than it is not to. Because if you think about the very earliest humans mm. and the kinds of, of ways they had to survive, they needed to stick together. They mm. needed to cooperate. They could not have survived. We could not have evolved into the big, large, complex societies we are. Mm people hadn't initially been willing to collaborate, cooperate and protect each other. So I suspect that's what's actually more coded into our, into our being as humans. But I think we are so distant from our basic nature. And, and so why is that? I think if you look at a society like this one or really much of the world right now, capitalism has become mm -hmm. such a taken for granted way of life that we assume what comes from capitalism is human nature. So for instance, cooperation, the fear about scarce resources and those kinds of things that, you know, if I give, if somebody else comes in, what will I lose? That is not the, that, that, that is a function largely of, of capitalism and, and capitalist thinking. Now, capitalism has got us all kinds of amazing things. So mm -hmm. I'm, not, you know, I'm not trying to say that capitalism has no place. But I think when we ask ourselves, what is really human nature? It's hard for us to connect to that right now. Interesting. Let's, let's, let's press on that because I think this is an interesting thread to go around philosophically or sociologically because, so, so to come back on that a little bit, I think that you're right. We, we, we are interconnected. We did have to connect with others and that is how we thrive as, as a species. But I wonder if it's not, it's not a little bit more nuanced in that we, in, we connect with our own, quote unquote, if you will. And at a time, humans, and I'm speculating a little bit here, but I think it's accurate. We were all the same. We we're all our own. So we interconnected. As we evolved, both literally, physically, as well as mentally in our sophistication and our consciousness, we started to identify differences in ourselves, whether it be geographical or the way we look, the color of our skin, whatever it might be. And that interconnectedness, that thing that made us successful, it started to become geared just towards us, whatever that us was, our tribe, our group. And even capitalism as an example, I think it's a great example. As you mentioned it, I, I think about this often because in some ways you're right. The, the first inclination is to say, that's not our pure human nature. That's something different. 
but it did evolve from human nature. Like we created capitalism. And I wonder if it's not in that same vein where the reason capitalism did involve, evolve is because human nature told us we break into groups, we figure out who our group is and we protect it. And capitalism kind of facilitates that because it's scarce resources and we can kind of deliver in that way. So what do you think about that? That kind of thought that you're right, there is an interconnectedness, but our human nature also makes us segment ourselves out and, and think about just us in whatever form that is. I do think our our human nature is in some way connected to protecting whoever the us is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that that us has to be bigger than one person. Right. Right. So even if you go back to hunter gatherer groups, really simple societies, there can be conflict between groups once they interact. Right. It isn't always the case mm -hmm. that one group welcomes another group. If there are territories, then there's going to be a boundary, mm -hmm. right? And then and, you have to deal with boundary crossing and, and those kinds of things. But I'm not sure I can go as far as to say it's human nature that gave us capitalism, unless we also then say, well, human nature also gave us socialism and communism. And so which which is the most human? Right? I'm not sure that there's, I'm not sure we can connect that to is human it the one nature. that wins? Is yeah. it that win and win is a terrible <laughs> word, right? Obviously, yeah. but is it is that the purest way to test? Like you're right, human nature gave us all different ideas Capitalism, at least at this point, is the pre pre predominant one. Right. So that's, I don't know, is there anything to that? Yeah. I, I think that the thing that gave us, I, I think the thing that, that motivated which system is going to win is, is not the nature or, or the connection of the system to our nature. It's who had the best weapons, who had the most sure. um, power, right? But, um, but it's fascinating to think about, like, how do our economic forms, our, our social forms reflect pieces of our human nature. Yeah. And I think, you know, to, to make the conversation more nuanced at that level, the most, the, the societies that have the highest like happiness indexes and things like that tend to be ones that have a blend of communitarian thinking and individualist thinking, right? That mm -hmm. blend socialism and capitalism in ways that meet human needs most effectively. So that gets us to ask questions about like, well, what are those human needs, right? So humans have need for shelter, for food, for affection, for, you know, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So what societies are best able to provide those needs, mm. you know, and, and in what ways do people work together to provide those mm. needs? So. Yeah, it starts to get very philosophical because as you yeah. zoom out enough, you start to say, the happiness index as an example, what is it we're trying to get to? What's the objective we believe as humans we want to be at? And I think a happiness index is as good as any, and we could define happiness differently, but it's that sense of like everybody getting to feel good about whatever their situation is or their circumstance or wherever they are, not that there won't be suffering. Um, and that's where I go back to where we were before of like, I, I've personally found it, it may be counterintuitive for some, but the more open you are, the more vulnerable or risk you take, yeah. um, net it out, yeah. happiness goes up. That, that goodness of whatever that is goes up because again, to your point, it allows you to experience so many more things and recognize the things that contribute to that happiness and that feeling of goodness. And in many ways, that's so logical, yet still yeah. challenging, obviously, as we're talking about. I can give you a really concrete example of that from my life. So I wrote a book about my mother and it's a memoir of taking care of her at the end of her life. Her life was shorter than it should have been. She died when she was 67. Mm. But it wasn't until her late 50s that she discovered her sexuality. Mm. And her sexuality, so she had 
she had um, sort of come of age in the post-war 1950s and she was socialized into a very heterosexual, very heteronormative way of thinking about sex. Mm -hmm. And she had very unhappy relationships with men. And for a long time, when I was growing up, she didn't even have any relationships with men. She and my father had separated, she'd married, she'd divorced again. Um, and then she just went through this long spell of no dating, no nothing. And she came to a point where she discovered, um, and, and there's a whole story about how she discovered this that we don't have to go into right now, but she discovered that she actually could really enjoy relationships with men if she was sexually dominant. Mm. So she discovered this identity for herself as a dom. And turns out she, from that point on, and this was in her late fifties, from that point on, she had several amazing, really happy relationships with a lot of interesting men. Mm. Now, why do I know about that? Right, mm -hmm. because a lot of times parents don't share information about their sex lives with their kids. And so I was open to her sexuality and she knew I would be open to her sexuality, partly because I had studied sexuality as a sociologist. I had written about it. Um, she and I, again, you know, told in the book, so we don't have to go into it here, but she and I had a kind of codependent relationship. So mm -hmm. talk about like risk and harm that comes from too much openness. We had had that too. Mm -hmm. But because of all of that, at this stage of her life, I was able to be open to her and help her kind of facilitate this new development mm. in her life. I had a lot more um, connections and knowledge about kink sexuality and queer sexuality and things like that. So I could be a resource for her. Mm. And then what happened shortly, some, some few years after she made that discovery was she got kidney cancer. And so then she had to face a lot of potential loss in her life. She ended up on dialysis. Um, I had to be open to a kind of dialysis that she was um, allowed to do at home. And I was not open to that at first because she was not a tidy housekeeper and I mm -hmm. thought she'd get sick, you know, make herself sick. Anyway, I, I took risks, I was open to that. Her openness to her sexuality and her kink community allowed her to really face that health crisis in a way that would have been much more terrifying for a lot of us mm. without that. Mm. There's so many ways that being open to things that are taboo or off limits are useful to us. Mm. But then she entered the hospital a few years later with a terminal illness. And one of the things we found out is that the healthcare system is not particularly open to um, addressing people's needs around sexuality even down to if you go to a rehab facility or a nursing home, can you have your partner there? You know, can you, is there any privacy mm. for sexuality? And, and are there people there who are even prepared to have that conversation with you, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The more openness we can create, the more options people have. Mm. So openness doesn't have to be about any particular choice that an individual makes, it just expands the number of choices that are available to us. Mm. And because I was open to her, I was able to help her have more options because she and I were open to each other. Um, we were able to navigate some of this healthcare stuff. It's really fascinating it is. the way that that level of, of, you know, in many ways, very unusual openness created opportunities for happiness in a very unhappy situation. Yeah. It's such a it's such a good example. Thank you for sharing that. Firstly, it's such a good example because it highlights the. Let me, let me just hit it head on, and, and then we'll kind of unpack it. Like 
so many people, as you said, would hear that story and say, well, that, that's unusual or it's strange to be open about that type of thing. And it's the beauty of conversations like this and actually being open, because if you really start to look at that, you start to identify like, what's the, you, you talked about boundaries before, where are the functional boundaries versus the non-functional boundaries? Because that's a perfect example where somebody would look at it and a visceral reaction from a lot of people would be like, you should never talk to your mom about that. That should never come up. That type of openness is inappropriate. And you say, okay, but why? Like, what is the harm? What is the risk you're actually worried about in having that type of conversation or having that dialogue or whatever it might be? And I can't help but believe that logically, if you work through that, you'll get to a conclusion that says, I don't know. There is no logic in being afraid of that. It's just some taboo thing that's been ingrained in us through societal things. And if I get to the root of it, there's really no danger to me at all. It just maybe makes me a little uncomfortable. And I'm not even sure why it makes me uncomfortable, if I'm being honest, right? And, and then you look at it again, sticking on that logic thread, and you say, okay, so there's not really much risk to it. What's the benefit? Well, the benefit is so obvious. It's so much more efficient to be able to actually look at the truth of a situation what, what do I need? What do I like? What makes me happy? And to be able to talk to people and find ways to, to expound on that is just so logical and so much more efficient. And it's just the perfect example of a situation where, again, visceral reaction is, nope, can't do that. But you break it down and you say, yeah, like you should do that because it's going to allow people to be happier and nobody's being hurt as a result of it. Right. And that's, you know, let's have that conversation. And maybe, maybe somebody comes and says, actually, no. Uh, society will be worse off. We will devolve as a society if we allow it to be open to talk about these things. Okay, let's be open to entertaining that conversation and see if there's any validity to that. And likely, I think you and I would both agree, there's not. But that openness, it doesn't, you could still be cautious. You could still ask questions and figure it out. It just gives you the opportunity to get to the optimal outcome where that closed-mindedness doesn't give you the chance. You hope, you have to hope and, and, and pray that you're going to get to that right outcome, but it's so much more limited and unlikely when you do it that way. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of focus right now on closing off conversations around sexuality with young people, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. All of these yeah. bills that are being passed in, in states all around the country. Um, it may be easier for us, in fact, to talk about elder sexuality, to talk about like, where is the benefit of talking about sex with our parents mm -hmm. than it is to think about um, where is it beneficial to talk about sex with young people but it starts with young people in so many ways. I mean, when I think about the mental health crises among young people in this country right now, and, and certainly it's been widely reported in the news, some of that comes down to the closure of boundaries between parents and kids around whatever it is the kid is struggling with. Mm -hmm. It might be sex and sexuality. It might be drugs. It might be bullying. Mm -hmm. It might be fear around performance in school. It could be so many things, right? But when we're not open to talking about those things, we close off relationships, we close off connection, and we close off the future mm. for people. Mm. And so, you know, that's really threatening, I think, for a lot of parents to think about because they think, well, if I create these options, or not create, if I acknowledge these mm. options that are out there for my kids, then maybe they'll turn away from my faith. Mm. Maybe they will live lives I, I don't approve of. And that's terrifying, I'm sure, for a lot of parents who hold very um, defined, specific religious beliefs, for instance. But I don't know, when I think about the situation with my mom, and I, I think now about like talking to doctors and nurses about these kinds of issues, we want everybody to have a good life. We want everybody to have a good death. 
we can't do either of those things if we don't talk openly about some of the most fundamental experiences we have. And sex is among those and dying is among those. And as a society, we're not good at talking about either one. So that's one reason that this value of openness is so important to me. Yeah, it's so true. So let's explore that a little bit philosophically and, and just in the spirit of the show, let's, let's, let's look at it. Let's be open. Somebody might say philosophically that topics like sex, right? Sexuality, kinks, all different things, whether it be with elders, with us, with our kids, whatever form it is. The reason to avoid talking about those things is that it taps into such like a base primal aspect of human nature that if you, if you unlock it or unleash it, I think there's many people that would believe there's a fear, like I touched on before, that that society will devolve, right? That anarchy will reign because it's just too powerful a force for us to just let it be free and open. Like the reason why over the history of humans, it's become confined is because it was functional. We needed to. If people are just out there, you know, expressing themselves and living free sexually, it doesn't allow for a functioning society that gets us to where we are today. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying in the spirit of, of the conversation, what do we think about that? Is there anything to that philosophically that there's some, some functionality and limiting topics like sexuality? I, I, no, I don't think there is. <laughs> the, the short answer is no. Um, sure, if, if people were just going to lay around and have sex all day, nobody would go to work. Nobody would raise the kids. Nobody would cook the food. You know, we would die. But that has never happened. And there have been many different societies with many different sexual ideologies, and there's lots of good writing and documentation about this. That is just simply not a realistic fear. Mm. The fear may be there, right? But it's not realistic. What we see instead, um, and this again, there's lots of sociology written about this, is that societies tend to restrict sexuality for specific ideological and economic purposes. Mm. Um, so, for instance, there's a lot of focus on restricting women's sexuality. And ideas about who is more or less sexual, men or women, have changed over time, even in this society, even in the United States, even in our ideology. Um, and that's partly related to the kind of economic forms that are dominant at the time. In um, early colonial United States, women were seen as wanton men were more sexually disciplined. But not that this was true, this was just mm -hmm. sort of the ideology, right? But that served a particular need at the time. Um, there was a need for lots of reproduction, right? We needed fast population growth if we were gonna colonize a, a space. Not saying that's the best goal, but it was the goal at the time, right? So sexually free, the idea that women are sexually free encouraged lots of sex. People should have lots of sex in Puritan New England. Right, the Puritan is a weird word here because we think of Puritans as sexually repressed. They weren't repressed in the sense that they didn't want to have sex. They were repressed in the sense that only sex for the purpose of procreating was mm. deemed legitimate. Mm. And that was because procreation was a really important social goal. Mm. Fast forward to industrial United States, we need smaller families now, right? We're living in cities, we're more cramped. Um, it's more expensive to raise kids. Kids aren't really an economic asset once we pass child labor laws, particularly. Um, and after that period, around that period, we get this very Victorian notion about women's sexuality. Women are pure. Mm. Um, women need to uh, try to discipline men around sex, in mm. fact. Um, you know, women, good women anyway, 
right, don't want sex. Mm -hmm. They will have it out of love, right? If they love you, they yeah, will have responsibility it. almost. Yes, be, yeah. and it, it is a duty, exactly. Um, and it, by framing it that way, then, you know, you can limit family size. Now, I'm not suggesting that like a bunch of priests or ministers sat down and said, hmm, how can we limit family size? Let's do this. But, mm -hmm. but it comes out of that same kind of ideology. So, you know, fast forward to today, I just, as we're talking, got a news flash on my screen that the Supreme Court has released the Dobbs decision and overturned Roe versus Wade. Official now? Yeah, hmm. official now. Now, I haven't read the decision. I don't know how it's changed since yeah. the leak decision from, you know, a couple months ago. But we are still engaged in this battle around what women's sexuality and reproductive capacity should look like. Mm. At the same time today, we are also engaged in battles around queer sexuality. You know, the don't say gay bill kind of thing, the model from Florida, but it's becoming pretty widespread. Even Smithtown's library was just in the news mm. for um, taking children's books out of their pride mm and moving any pride displays out of the children's portion of the library. Mm. So, so these are big cultural dilemmas and battles, but they don't serve a rational purpose. They serve an ideological purpose. They serve a religious purpose, perhaps. They certainly tap into people's emotions and serve a purpose there. But they're, you know, to get to your original question, they don't serve a purpose in terms of making a more functional society. If by functional, we mean one that runs smoothly and and uh, makes people happy. Yeah, I mean, it's it becomes a question of, again, a philosophical question of that subjectivity of, of a lot of the words being said, functional, you know, successful, better society, right? Like, because I, I would have to imagine a lot of the people who hold the ideological views, whether they be religious or whatever they are, that say we need to pull those books out of that bookshelf, or we need to overturn Roe versus Wade, or whatever it is, all the things we're talking about, it's because they believe with certainty that their ideology is right. right. They believe they've got it, and and that comes back to a thread throughout this conversation, back to openness. Yeah, openness to me, it's the it's the opposite of certainty. Certain, I, I think certainty is one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous things that exist in the world. And again, it's the other side of the openness coin, because when you have certainty, you will take actions like that because you believe you're right. And, and the problem with life, if you will, and, and the philosophy of it is that because none of us know for sure what is right, what is wrong, right? On a long enough time horizon, who's to say? It allows people who have more closed-minded views to say, I, I, I could be right. You can't prove me wrong. You can't prove that if we celebrate pride or, or, or queer ideologies, whatever it is, and put those books in front of our kids, that it's not going to make us worse off as a society. It's possible. It's possible, right? And, and somebody who practices true openness has to acknowledge, like, I think that's very unlikely, but, but maybe. And it's almost like an unfair fight at that point. The people with certainty have so, seemingly have, like, more... I don't know, charge behind their, their argument. And it's not logical. I'm not, you know what I mean? But it's, it's what makes this tough. And I think it's what makes it challenging to figure out what you do about it, because the answer would seem to be more openness. But openness means I need to be open to that person's ideology and entertain it when they're not entertaining mine. And again, it gets back to that unfair fight aspect of yeah. it a little bit. You were interested early in the conversation in finding ways to quantify things. Mm. And one of the things that strikes me as a a piece of information that can be introduced into a conversation like the one you're suggesting would happen between 
the more open person and the, the yeah. person certainty is, you know, can we agree on how to measure something? Can we agree on how to measure whether this is dangerous or whether it's less dangerous? And, and maybe we can't, but one measurement that we might all be able to agree on is, uh, and it, it speaks to a kind of religious ideology too, is sort of the protection of life, yeah. right? If we're going to talk about um, whether something is good or not good, right? And that's incredibly subjective and value-laden language. Maybe we can talk about Will doing it allow more people to live or will doing it be associated with more people dying? Mm -hmm. And one thing we know about um, death rates for young people is that being closed to discussions around sexuality, drug use, all kinds of things increases death, mm -hmm. right? More kids kill themselves, more kids overdose, more kids engage in risky behavior when they don't have good information. Mm -hmm. I, let me not use the word good, when they don't have accurate information mm -hmm. about things. Um, when we talk about women's health care, you know, there's a, a life argument around ending abortion, but more women will die in a society that does not allow openness to decision-making around reproduction. And entirely possible particularly among poorer women, more kids will suffer mm. in a society that doesn't provide strong um, economic and social support for kids if they are born into households where they don't have enough support. Mm. So their lives will also be likely shortened, right? I mean, they will, they will be born, but they will likely have shorter and less healthy lives. And so I think we, you know, it, it's complicated, but if people want to have a discussion about whether openness is beneficial or not and what kinds of openness are beneficial or not, then one measure, one metric could be, does it facilitate longer life, happier life? Does it facilitate greater health? Yeah. You know, because we do have metrics on those things. Yeah, it's almost as if the, the advantage, right? I said unfair fight before, but I think what you're saying is, is really important. It's, it's what evens that fight or maybe even makes it unfair to stick with that term, but in the right direction, if you will, is that openness has the advantage that it is open to the truth. Like it, its objective is to get to the true best outcome, whatever that might be. And it, it's willing to go where that goes. Whereas closed-mindedness certainty is not. It's, it's very finite. It's very limited in what it can look at. So to your point, what you're saying is let's look objectively as best we can at the metrics. Let's look at the data and be truly open to it and see where it leads us because the goal is to get to the, to the truth and the better outcome, which is whatever it is, right? Younger people living longer, better lives or however we're defining that metric and measuring it. Um, you have that advantage with openness that the, the truth is gonna take you to where it takes you. And I think that is an advantage. I think that is something that um, allows openness to, to hopefully win out at the end of it. Um, because the truth should win, ideally, if we can find it or get as close as we can to it. And that's why I said earlier that I think openness is linked with curiosity. Yeah. You know, yeah. we have to want to know things. We have to want to learn things. And the more certain we are, the less we need to know. Yes. The less we need to learn. Yes. And, so, and take, it, take it to what you're saying with, you know, the, the, the library and the books. Yeah. To, to me, th those are the conversations. That's part of the reason I do this show is like, 
if, if somebody that I can imagine, I'm sure some of them may very well be, be neighbors of mine or in my community, obviously, people that would say like, yeah, you got to take those books out of the library. They have to be taken away. To be able to say, okay, let's sit down and let's have an open conversation about that. Let's let the truth play out and let's talk about what our objective actually is and what we're trying to get to. And again, it, it, you have to be open to where it goes, but I think a lot of people would start to realize, I think, that if the objective is we want our kids to be safe, happy, healthy, to, to have access to, to, to um, you know, satisfaction and fulfillment and joy in their lives, if that's what we're going towards, as you start to look at pulling those books away, you say, okay, what actually is the risk of those books being there? What is going to happen? Let's actually look. Let's be open and look. Okay, they're going to read it. They're going to learn about homosexuality or whatever the different topic is. And you say, okay, but now let's keep going. Why, why is that bad? What's going to happen from that that we think? And it forces that curiosity, as you say, to actually face the truth and say, is what I'm saying rational? Is what am I afraid of actually rational? Is this boundary that I'm setting actually functional or is it rooted in something that's not real? And right. that curiosity gives us a better chance to get to that outcome. Right, right. You know, to be fair to Smithtown, I believe they didn't take the books off the shelves, but they just limited the display. Mm -hmm. But even that's an interesting choice. It's like saying, yeah, if you're willing to hunt around, maybe you'll find that thing, but we're not going to tell you we have it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to show it. And I think when you think about the kids in that instance, like, so what is the harm to the kid of learning, you know, reading a book about somebody has two mommies or that somebody has a, a same sex partner? Well, so one option, one opportunity, sorry, one outcome is, okay, if they have those feelings themselves, they're now going to know they're not alone. They might find people to talk to about it, and maybe they'll end up not hating themselves yep. in that way. If they don't have those feelings themselves, they might say, oh, that's interesting. There are people who are different from me, and they're not bad that's people. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay, right. Neither of those outcomes is bad. Well, let's even go to the outcome that somebody might be afraid of, which I think you and I would both agree is not a realistic fear. But let's say somebody who doesn't have those feelings reads that book and then says, hmm, maybe I do have those feelings now. Maybe, maybe I want to explore that, right? Because that's, I think, a lot of people's fear that that might happen. Okay. And, right. and then what? Why, why is that bad? Because I, I think it forces people to face a question or an inconvenient truth they might not want to face. I think if you play out that thread, what it says is like, well, they may start acting gay if they're not gay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And why is that bad? And then they might realize they're not. And then they, right. or whatever it is, like it forces right. you to look at it for what it actually is and say, oh, I just don't like gay people or I just don't want my kid to be gay. Okay. Well, why don't you want that? Why don't you? Right. And it forces us to actually get to the root of what it is, which I think is what you're articulating. Like that's what we want. We want the openness and the curiosity to figure out what's actually makes sense here and what doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. And now, now let's go here for a second as we're coming towards the end. This is, this is, I think, a challenge in this, and you touched on it before, ideology, religion. Somebody could step into that conversation and say, okay, I'll tell you why that's bad. Because God said, the Bible said, whatever religion, you might be Muslim, whatever it is, that homosexuality is a sin. And now we get into the conversation of like, you know, that's, if somebody actually believes that there is a God in the sky, maybe there is, I'm not judging anybody for that that's decreed that this is true, homosexuality is a sin, you run into a very difficult dilemma, I think, for a lot of people. My personal take on that, just my personal, it's not judging anybody else's, I like to go more the route of saying, well, why would God say that? Like, it's not enough for me, and somebody might say this is blasphemous. They might say, this is why you're going to hell. 
But I can't see another way other than saying, listen, God, if you're actually there, I respect you for whatever respect you deserve. But why would you say that? I need to know why. Because this seems to be hurting people. And I need to understand that. But there's other people that would say you can't ask that question. If God said it, you just go with it. And, and what do we do in that situation? I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a hard one. I, I think thinking relationally in a society like this that claims anyway to have a kind of separation between church and state and allows for a great deal of religious freedom, my, my response to somebody who came to me and had that position would be, well, your God says that. And so I understand why you believe that. In fact, I'm curious to know more about what your God says about those things so that I can better understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, that is your religion and your religion is not allowed to govern our public spaces. Our public spaces have to be open to people of all religions and people of no religion. And so you are free to have that belief, of course, in this society, but you are not free to impose that in our public schools, in our public libraries, in our community centers and, and places like that, yeah. right? Because yeah. I think the, the same kind of openness we're talking about means I need to be open to that person and listen and understand why they believe what they believe and what does it mean in their life that they believe that? Mm. How mm. does that work for them? Mm. How does that work in their community? Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's right. I agree with that. I agree with that. I, I had a conversation with somebody on the show whose um, their values were more or less very conservative, kind of traditional Christian values. And we were talking about a lot of this. And, and we talked about that topic of the separation of church and state. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing, because I think there's a lot of people, and again, no value judgment in this, it's just an observation, but who, who have really strong values, whatever they might be. In this case, it was Christian, but, and, and they, you know, this idea that for them to believe that well, we have a, a democracy and we have a government and it's set up in a certain way and we have to follow that. But it, it begs the question, like, if you actually do believe in Christianity, that that is the truth of the universe, are you really willing to put democracy and government policy over that? Because almost by definition, that Christian belief, or again, it could be whatever religion, if you're being honest, that's going to take priority because you think that's who created the universe. You think that governs everything. So I think you're right. I think the way we've tried to solve for that is say separation of church and state. I think when it gets to a human individual level, though, that prioritization of which one's actually more important, I think more people pick their religious or ideology, you know, ideology as the value that takes more precedent. And that's why we still have the problems we have today. That's why that separation of church and state sounds nice, but doesn't actually hold for many people. Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, I think here's what I think. I think these are unbelievably complicated topics. I think, though, that the value you bring to this of openness, right where you started, is it's very hard for somebody to argue that value. Because if we agree that our objective, as you said, let's, let's figure out what we're measuring for. If our objective is the betterment of society and people feeling safer, you know, more free to be themselves, it's hard to argue that openness isn't going to get there. The only reason you would be against openness is if you have some form of certainty that says, I'm afraid of this thing or I need to make sure it's this way. If you actually believe that the truth should win out, then you should have no fear of openness. Doesn't make any of this easy. It's still yeah. super complicated and challenging. And But I, I hope conversations like this for just you and I, and hopefully anybody listening, maybe it sparks something. Maybe it makes people realize and be considering thinking of a different way and being more open. And I think that's the best we can hope for. Well, I hope so too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, listen, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I appreciate you so much for being on, being so open, <laughs> um, being so candid, because I think it models it for other people, be the change you want to see in the world. So I appreciate you so much.
Well, thank you so much for doing your show. I really like what you're doing here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. I will. Thank you.